I suppose as you get older, you realize that life is finite. You only have so many hours in the day and you've only got so many, so many hours or days of life left. And for me, it's just to say, yeah, I am good enough and I'm not going to waste my time on stuff that's A, not important to me, also things that I don't enjoy. And you can be hugely successful by just having a passion and just having the pure guts to go for that passion. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm chatting to Nick Hollis. Nick is a professional adventurer. And so I'm chatting to him today to see what we can learn about purpose and resilience. Nick is one of, I don't know how many people have done it, but he's one of a few people, I guess, who've climbed all seven of the highest mountains in the world. No, that's not true. He's climbed the highest mountain on every continent in the world, and there are seven of them. Do you know what they're called? We'll find out. Nick's going to tell us which one's the hardest, which one's the easiest, which ones he enjoyed the most, which one's the most beautiful. And he's going to talk about how and why he left HP and how following your passion is something that everybody should do. And in fact, when I asked him what he had, what he knew now that he wished he'd known earlier, it was that back yourself, life short. So we talk about that. He's got some great book tips. And we talk about his next world record attempt, which is to also, in addition to having climbed the seven summits of the highest mountains and seven continents, it's to ski to the North Pole and the South Pole unaided, and then to row across the Atlantic. So we talk about where he is in that journey and what, what's happening next. And we also talk how his plans this year got derailed by a global pandemic and how, in fact, he has uh, caught and recovered or is recovering from COVID. So we have a chat about his personal journey this year. Great conversation with Nick. I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, Dominic. I hope you're keeping well. Uh, it's Nick here. And just to give a little background of myself before we start, I'm probably most well known as being a mountaineer. And on the back of that, I completed the Seven Summit Challenge, climbing the highest mountain on each of the seven continents, and that includes Everest. And that was a challenge I completed in May last year. Um, I consider myself an adventurer, but I also have a day job as well. And, and I run a corporate training and expedition company where we take business teams, take them out of their usual office environment, put them into a completely new environment. And by doing that, we're able to generate what I consider to be real teamwork, real team development. I also run a corporate well-being company, uh, delivering courses, seminars on 
effectively how to optimize their performance, but also their well-being. I'm, in, I'm intrigued. The team development stuff, my first job out of uni was M&S, and they, they sent management teams from stores to the Lake District and made us do stuff for 24 hours in the cold and wet. Um, do you have to take a team that can be built? Because my recollections of those times with M&S is some of those dysfunctional teams just fell apart. Because they, they in the store, it sort of worked because the manager had some authority. But once you, everyone realized he couldn't light a fire and tie knots and he didn't like the cold, like his leadership went to zero and somebody else would step up. And is that what, so when you when you run a team development, what what makes it work well? What I think what, our job what breaks um, as the facilitators is to create the environment where the teamwork can thrive. Um, it's also to apply a degree of pressure and a degree of discomfort. But again, that needs to be managed. If you take it to the point of excess, you're absolutely right. The whole piece breaks down. It falls down. Now, the other thing is we offer a, a, a range of activities. Now, if you were to take a company and you were to say that the entire company needs to go on this particular course, then we'd have to really downplay a number of factors. So, for example, you're going to have within a typical team a range of fitness levels, ability levels, etc., and we'd need to accommodate that. For me, the things that we enjoy the most are the more challenging events. Uh, to give an example, we run a three-day River Thames expedition where they'll camp. They'll, uh, they'll be camping at the end of each day and they'll be spending up to 12 hours paddling a canoe down the River Thames. So a real adventure. Now, for those sorts of events, you couldn't mandate that within a company. It would be, it would be a, um, I'm not sure it would be allowed. So it's a, volu- it's a voluntary thing. But what you'd be very surprised at is the proportion of employees within the company, when they're given their opportunity to put their name in the hat, they actually put their name in the hat to go forward for those events. I've, I've done the Three Peaks Challenge at work a few times, and there were definitely some people who were in love with the idea, but once we'd gone up and down Ben Nevis, they were no longer in love with the idea. They were quite happy to sit in the bus. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the Three Peaks Challenge is one of our big events. And what you've... It's, essential you avoid a scenario where they get all psyched up for this great weekend away, they travel to Scotland, spend a night in a bunk, and then they get on Ben Nevis and they last 20 minutes before they have to come back down again. And and, and that's not what we're looking to do. And there's ways to avoid that. In the case of the Three Peaks, we mandate that they come and spend a day with us in the Brecon Beacons. And not only is that invaluable in terms of their own development, I mean, the difference you'll see across that across that 10-hour day is they'll, they'll come in as a collection of misfits. Um, they're not quite sure what to do, but it's surprising how quickly they develop. But back to your point, yeah, you're absolutely right. We have to ensure that, that whatever they embark on is something that they do have the capability to achieve, albeit even if that means they're going to push themselves to their absolute limit in doing so. How close to your limit were you when you did the seven summits in seven continents? I mean, over what period of time you finished it? Did you say last March? How, how long did it take to do? Yeah, so, so, I mean, the first of the seven summits I climbed was Kilimanjaro, and that was 20 years ago. And really, it started my, my journey into the, the big overseas peaks. But since launching my training expedition company, one of the trips I run is taking teams up Kilimanjaro. So I've climbed Kilimanjaro, gosh, over 10 times now in the capacity of a, as a leader. So if we were to take the seven summits from 
back to back, how long did it take? You could say, well, from first climbing Kilimanjaro to summit in Everest, it was a 19-year project. But actually, the seven summits themselves, I've completed in 10 years. It's a 10 years from start to finish. And is Everest the toughest? A lot of people are, are not going to be happy about me saying this, but I would say no. Um, for me, I found Denali, uh, the highest mountain in, in Alaska, um, considerably more challenging than Everest for a number of reasons. With Everest, despite the fact I was trying to climb it as independently as I possibly could, uh, it's impossible. It's such a big mountain and you need an infrastructure in place, albeit the ice doctors putting the ladders that people will have seen through the Kumbu Icefall. There's provisions at base camp for food, etc. So you're a part of a machine when you climb Everest. It's, I suppose, independent mountaineers would consider it to be quite a, quite a luxurious operation. In the case of Denali, um, it's the polar opposite. I climbed it with just one other mountaineer, um, quite well known now, a chap by the name of John Gupta. We traveled out, we flew onto a glacier at the base of the mountain, and there were just two of us. And I remember waving goodbye to this, this single propeller plane with the engine still running as we were literally thrown out onto this glacier. And him saying, I'll pick you up in a month. And he literally whizzed <laughs> off and disappeared. So you've got John and myself, literally, and we're, we're in fits of laughter because we've got about 165 pounds of equipment each. And you can see Denali from the bottom and you look up and this thing is huge. From bottom to top, it's actually a bigger mountain than Everest. And you're thinking, my God, we've got to get up there. Um, and also just in terms of conditions on Denali, it's, I think, colder. Uh, you certainly get higher winds and it's much more technical. So as a complete package, yeah, I, I would hand on heart say it was, a, it was a more challenging proposition than Everest. And oxygen at the summit as well on Denali? No, no, no. So the only, the only mountain of the seven I've used oxygen is Everest. Yeah. So, so how long did it did uh, and it, it took you the whole month? No, we climbed it remarkably quickly. Um, we had a combination of good weather, and John and I were both pretty fit at that point in time. So we, we worked our way up the mountain. You do it in stages, and initially you're not able to carry all of your kit. So you you, you take the siege approach. You'll carry half your kit up for a day, spend a night, and then go back the following day and retrieve the rest. So this is how you work your way up the mountain. Most teams will factor in rest days, A, to acclimatize, and secondly, in case of bad weather. But we didn't have bad weather, and we both felt pretty okay with the altitude, and so we were able to push on. And we did this right up to the high camp, uh, the, the last point where you pitch your tent before you go for summit. But for us, what was particularly challenging with Denali, we made our summit bid. It was quite a tough day. The conditions weren't great. We got to the summit, returned back to our, our tent at high camp. And on the radio, we, we asked for a request to weather forecast. And then over the radio, we heard there's a depression coming. It's going to be with you in 24 hours and it's going to last for 10 days. So this meant that we were, we were faced with the prospect of 10 days stuck in a tent, just the two of us, uh, having achieved the objective. So by now, we just wanted to go home. <laughs> So we took, we took one look at each other and we're both thinking the same thing. Should we do this? And we literally had a cup of tea, packed our tent away in record time. And then in one single go, 
Well, keep in mind now we've been out for 16 hours already. We're pretty beaten up. Um, and then we put in another 19-hour descent to get back to that glacier and managed to get the last plane in to pick us up um, before, yeah, before this 10-day effective storm came in. Along the way down, I remember there were these other mountaineers desperate for food because they knew they were going to be snowed in for 10 days. And we were just handing out every last bit of food we had. And we're like, right, we have to get off now. If we don't, we are stuffed. You're going to be eating each other for 10 days. Somebody, there's only going to be one of you to get picked up 10 days later. Well, he's a lot smaller than me. So, um, so yeah, I reckon, <laughs> I, I reckon lunch would be on, definitely on John. Very good. But um, Nick, you haven't always done this. You used to have, a, used to have a, a normal job. I was about to say proper job, but normal job. What did you do before this and why did you end up doing this? Yeah, that's right. Um, since... You, Leaving university, uh, my first job was in sales. It was in an international role. I did that for a couple of years and then moved into what was then 3M. And ultimately, I moved to Hewlett Packard, so at the time, the biggest IT company in the world. And I was running uh, one of their largest businesses across EMEA. Um, so it was a relatively senior role. I mean, when we were dealing with numbers, we were dealing with billions rather than hundreds of thousands. Uh, so it's quite a high profile role. It was very, very high pressure role. That's for sure. A lot of, lot of focus was on me at, during that period of my life. But while I was living this corporate life, I was also trying to balance my, my passion for fitness and adventure. And it got ridiculous. So to give an example, I'd finish work on a Friday evening. I'd get in the car, whiz down to the mountains, a four or five hour drive. Spend the, mount, spend the weekend in the mountains and get back sometimes late on a Monday morning and back to work. In order to do the bigger expeditions, I would save up my holiday and take it in a one and go off and, and spend a month in one part of the world or another and come back. You know, I was doing deals on the sides of cliff faces. It, it really got quite crazy. And it got to a point where, where something needed to give. A, I was getting very burnt out really burnt out and it couldn't go on much longer and whereas I really did enjoy and I genuinely enjoyed my corporate career my passion definitely lied outside of that it was in the mountains and I do remember sitting in some meetings just thinking what am I doing with my life why am I here I've been in this room for eight hours this is insane and 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 in the end I I, I made it I made a deal with myself and I simply said, look, if I go to work three times on the trot and I don't enjoy it, I, you know, I'm really, this feeling is still with me. I'm going to resign. And that's what I did. I literally resigned. I didn't have a package. Um, I was one of their high achievers, so they weren't going to give me a redundancy package or anything like that. And I remember the conversation and I said, look, I need to go and explore some, some other aspects of my life. And said, oh, great, we'll give you a sabbatical for a year. I'm not quite sure a year is going to cut it. Two years. Well, yeah, okay, well, let's put that on the table and we'll talk. And I simply never went back. <laughs> You're still on sabbatical from HP. So I'm still on sabbatical. <laughs> but interestingly, it has gone full circle. And they're now probably my biggest client um, in terms oh, okay. of the other stuff that I do. So we never lost touch. We've maintained a brilliant relationship. And I'm really proud. I mean, they're an amazing company. I'm really proud to have, have served them for 10 years. And I'm also proud to have the relationship I have with them now. Oh, very good. Very good. And so are they, is HP typical of the type of clients you do work for? I mean, is, are they your sort of core demographic, large multinational IT companies? Or 
Yeah, I mean, we work with a variety of organizations from, you know, 10 employees looking that are growing and looking to develop their team right through to right through to the blue chips. But I mean, yeah, 80% of my business would come from FTSE 100, Fortune 500 um, organizations today. Okay, very good. I, look, let me take you back to the mountains because I, I, you've you talked about the hardest one. Is Kilimanjaro the easiest of the seven? I think that's a brilliant question. It's a mountain, in my view, is often underestimated. And the, 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 the phrase I hear so many times when it comes to Kilimanjaro is, Chris Moyles did it, it can't be that hard. <laughs> but what you need to remember with Kilimanjaro, it's not technical, it's a walk. Um, there's nothing technical on the, on the, on the entire, entire thing. But it's high. I mean, it's just shy of 6,000 meters. And a lot of people, when they climb Kilimanjaro, try and climb it in a five-day round trip. And that means you're going from sea level to nearly 6,000 meters in three days. Now, that is insane. The trip I run is a minimum of seven days, but that still means they're going from sea level to 6,000 meters in five days. And that is still very tough. There's not another mountain that I can think of where you would gain that amount of height gain in such a short period of time. I mean, if you take Everest, base camp sits at 5,300 meters, um, and we'll take 10 days just to get there when we climb Everest. And then we'll spend several days there before we push up any higher on the mountain. So you're looking at a fortnight minimum on Everest before you hit the altitude of Kilimanjaro. So if anyone is thinking of climbing Kilimanjaro, A, I would say do it. It's an amazing adventure. But secondly, don't underestimate it. Do not underestimate that mountain. And it's mentally as difficult as it is physically. And if ever there was um, a situation where the the tortoise wins, wins the race over the hair, Kilimanjaro is it. And so what are the other four then that you haven't mentioned so far? Yeah, so you have. And, 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 and do you do, is there a sort of an order in of height or do you do, do you typically talk about them in sort of a, a circle around the globe or what's the? What's no. The there's, there's, no, there's no set way of climbing them. Um, you could start on Everest if you wanted. And, and sadly, people today are trying to do just that. And I wouldn't recommend it. And, I, and I've seen the consequences of taking that approach. For me, uh, with the seven summits, I mean, the truth is, I didn't think I would ever complete all seven summits. It was a dream of mine. I'd read a lot of books about the seven summits. But I thought with Kilimanjaro, well, I could do at least one of them. And having climbed Kilimanjaro, um, I thought, well, okay, I, I did that. I still have an appetite for a bit more. What could I do next? So the next mountain was um, Elbrus. So it's the highest mountain in Russia. And it's more technical. It's no higher than Kilimanjaro, but it's more technical. It's winter. Um, and you, need a, you need a few more skills to be able to get up Elbrus. So that was the next one. And that's how I worked through the seven summits. After Elbrus was um, Aconcagua. So that's a mountain, in Ar- highest mountain in Argentina. So the highest in South America, and it's just shy of 7,000 meters. Uh, And that's a beast because you do it without oxygen. And again, if you consider, come back to Everest, most mountaineers these days on Everest are on oxygen below um, the height height of Aconcagua, below 7,000 meters. I didn't, on Everest myself, I pushed higher. I was quite keen to go without oxygen for as much as that climb as possible. So yeah, again, Aconcagua is a long expedition. 21 days typically on the mountain 
Um, and you can get some gnarly conditions up on the top as well. So that's a, that's a big hill. After Aconcagua uh, was Denali. As I said, my, my personal view is that's the toughest of all the seven summits, certainly if you're doing it as an independent mountaineer. And certainly if you decide, decide to do three days' worth of descent in one day. Yeah, that's right. Well, that, that, <laughs> that's optional, but it's, I think it's a better option than 10 days in a tent with John Gupta um, eating uh, mountaineering rations. And then, you've got, um, and then you've got the really amazing one, which is in Antarctica. And Mount Vincent, you may have heard of that. So, and this is just blow your socks off. It's not super high. Um, it's not even 5,000 meters high, uh, but it's extreme. I mean, just to get onto the continent of Antarctica is an adventure in itself. You fly in from Chile on this beaten up old Russian jet. This thing is extraordinary. It can land on the glacier. Um, from there, you'll then take a single propeller plane inland to a base camp. And genuinely, it, it is the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. To travel through Antarctica is extraordinary. And the mountain itself isn't particularly difficult, but it's ridiculously cold, as you can imagine. I remember on our, on our, on our, summit, on our summit day, um, it must have been with wind chill. I mean, it was, it was about minus 40 ambient temperature, and it was a windy day. So getting up to minus 60 with wind chill. Uh, there's no there's no time for summit photos you can't take your hands out your gloves you'll lose your fingers and sadly on my trip when I was out there I encountered a number of people that had just done just that that exposed their hands um, when they were on the summit and they incurred some quite serious frostbite so it's it's a serious place to go but in terms of just the most extraordinary both in terms of beauty um, and something really different from mainstream life than Antarctica is uh, is the place to go. And then, of course, you've got Everest. Um, and, I, and I climbed Everest, I think, no more than three months having finished um, Mount Vincent in Antarctica. And I remember I even put a trip up Kilimanjaro in between. <laughs> Just to keep your hand in. But why would, in, uh, why would on Mount St. Vincent, why would people take their hands out their gloves? I mean, you know, people must know that it's going to get, they're going to get frostbite. They're just... Do they not know or just think it's not going to happen to me or it just seems ridiculous to go all that way and then not be cautious? People do silly things, um, particularly on the summits of mountains. Now, tired, oxygen starved, not thinking properly. Yeah, all of the above. But let's add a couple into the mix. A lot of them, Antar uh, to climb the highest mountain in Antarctica, Vincent, is expensive. It's I'm trying to remember what a typical mountaineer would pay. You're talking $50,000 to go and climb it. Uh -huh. um, a lot of the mountaineers out there are, are sponsored, so they've managed to fund their trip through, I promise you I'll get you a banner on the summit or wear your clothing. Uh, and a lot of them are inexperienced. So you've then got inexperienced mountaineers in an environment that is, is very new to them with a huge amount of pressure to deliver for their sponsors. Uh, they've got a degree of summit fe fever on the top. And, yeah, they do silly things. They do silly things. And, and there are guides up there that are trying to, to, to a degree to control this behavior. But even while I was on the mountain, there were a number of situations where there were literal standoffs between the, quote, clients and the guides, where the guides were saying, look, you need to go down. And the clients saying, no, not until you've taken a photo of these eight banners that I've got for my sponsor. So it can get things can get a little bit interesting in these uh, in these places. But you've um, 
you got you were you were planning to go back there this year, weren't you? That's right. Yeah. So because <laughs> you did because you you had you had this you had a you had a plan for a little jaunt. <laughs> I did, and there's a story behind that as well. So, having completed the seven summits um, within a week, and I think this is this is often the case when you realise a goal. Um, life started to perhaps lose its its sense of purpose. So, I, I wanted to do something something new, start a new journey and adventure. And to be honest, by that point, I'd, I'd, I'd had enough of mountains. I wanted to break from from mountains, but still something within the adventure field. And I've been working over recent years with an amazing organization called Worldland Trust. David Attenborough is a patron. And um, so I was looking to do something to, to raise funds for them and something big and significant. So I started exploring some different options and came up with a, with a cunning plan. And that was what I thought at the time was a world first, to be the first person to complete the seven summits, ski both poles solo, and then rode the Atlantic. Uh-huh. So within, within the plan that I'd, I'd formulated, and we, we got this registered with Guinness World Records and what have you, um, was Antarctica. And you'll know yourself, the size of Antarctica is huge. Um, a lot of supposed adventurers, they do this thing called the last degree. And I don't want to knock that at all, but it's something just over 100 kilometers of, of ski travel. So the last piece to the pole. But for me, I wanted to do something perhaps a little bit more extreme. And when I looked into it, the most extreme thing I could find was a full distance crossing. So from the edge of Antarctica right the way to the pole. Uh, And there's a route uh, that can be done. It's about 1,100 kilometers. So let's say 10 times perhaps the usual distance. And uh, and I signed up and, um, and I was ready to go and I should be out there as we speak right now. But unfortunately, COVID put a skybosh on that uh, on that plan. And uh, and I haven't given up on it. It's just needed to be moved into the future. And so you were going to s- ski from the edge to the pole, and then you've got to do the same in the North Pole. Yeah, the North Pole. The North Pole. We haven't figured out the exact route because the North Pole is is quite quite interesting in the sense of global warming has meant that both the amount of time that you can spend on the and I can't call it a continent because it's not a landmass, but on on the ice. Yeah. shortened and also the access points are different now because a lot of that sea ice uh, is, is is no longer there so we're still working out exactly the strategy for the north pole but to give context to the south pole we estimate it would take somewhere in the region of 55 days to make that journey so that's 55 days solo on the ice uh, unsupported and then what happens you get you get picked up or you've got to get yourself back off again yeah no i wouldn't want to walk back no so um so weather permitting, um, a, a, a plane will come in and uh, just a, a small plane and pick me up and take me back to back to the initial base. And so how much, how heavy is your sled, do you reckon? Ooh. And how much of it, how much of the contents is food and that you then eat in 54 days? Because I guess you've got to take more in case it takes longer. Yeah, so you'll need, you'll need a contingency and... At a guess with a sled, um, 250 kilos. So pulling, you know, significantly more than my body weight. And, and what you'll find is, as you've said, that that weight will reduce as the journey goes on, as the food gets uh, gets consumed. Because if you work out, you're going to be consuming something in the region of 6,000 calories a day. I'm just doing a quick calculation in my head. 
that's going to be about a kilo to a kilo and a half of food. So across that, if we said 60 days, you're looking at something like 90 kilos, 100 kilos of, of food. You've then got to factor in the fluid, the, uh, the fuel, because you need to get water, right? A, to drink, and secondly, to cook the food. Um, and that's gas. And obviously, that's got a weight as well that will burn off yeah. through the journey. Huh. Okay. So you should have been there now, but you're not there. So, I mean, two things have happened to you this year. One is that goes the global pandemic would have made that a challenge. Um, are there any big expeditions that have gone on at all? Or has the pandemic stopped it completely? Yeah, I mean, for for a long period, it, it stopped dead in its tracks. I mean, if you take Everest, for example, it was cancelled. Um, and, and that's devastating because I know a lot of the Sherpa community um, personally and what should have been the two months where they make the majority of their income for the year, which literally overnight went away. Um, I think one Chinese team made an attempt on Everest, and I think they got a few guys up there. But outside of that, you know, it was a closed season for Everest. It's starting to open up again now. Areas are now just starting to open up. A uh, good friend of mine, guy Steve Backshaw, um, he's he's out and about now. He's managed to get um, permission to get into a few places. So hopefully, you know, as we move into next year, things will move back to a degree of normality. But you were unlucky enough to get COVID-19 yourself. That's right. <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Um yeah, that's, I mean, where do you start with that? I mean, to give the background, yeah, I picked up COVID. I was, I was in the US at the time training for the Yukon 1000, which is the longest kayak race, unsupported kayak race in the world. Was that as a, just as a sort of a training warm-up for 54 days on the South, to the South Pole attempt? Yeah, it's something I've always <laughs> wanted to do. And, and, and funny enough, I was also booked in to do the uh, Marathon Day Saab in April as well. So I had a really cool lineup. Um, this year, so it's Mountain Day Saab in April, and then the Yukon, which in is, July. which is, is, is that seven marathons in seven days across the Sahara Desert? Is that that's the one? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I think it's six marathons in seven days. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's uh, again, uh, it, it's it's a long run, right? It's a long run, and um, and everything was going fantastically uh, until I started to feel just a bit off. I remember going training, thinking I've got no energy, I've got no power, and um, and just carried on going downhill. And for the first week, I thought, you know, oh, I've just picked up a virus. Um, you know, I'll be, I'll be right. I'll be right as rain soon. And I didn't get better. And it just got worse and worse. And I remember one day I thought, I've got to get out. I'm just going to try a, a, just an easy walk. And I managed to get what, 10 minutes from the house. And I collapsed. I was literally lying on the pavement, unable to get up and thinking, how do I get home? I just, even if you gave me a million pounds at that moment, I could not have picked myself up and got back home. Uh, so I called an ambulance and anyway, met the ambulance guys. They checked me out, did some tests and said, okay, we're not going to take you to hospital. And, um, and we're just going to leave you here on the side of the road. And I was quite, I was quite relieved to be honest, because this was in March and, you know, and, and uh, that was the point where I really did not want to end up in hospital. I just had this mental picture at the time of me in hospital and this ventilator. And I was thinking, no, this can't be happening. Uh, but fortunately, they decided that, uh, you know, I, I, that I wasn't severe enough to take in. Um, and actually, I then started to improve over the next few weeks. I got better. I was never 100 percent, but I was able to get back to some basic training and doing a little bit of work. 
But that only lasted six weeks, two months. And then I went downhill again with this second phase of COVID. And that was grim. Um, and it's no exaggeration to say, to say I spent nearly three months largely bedbound, bedbound or sofa bound. I'd, I'd get up and I'd, I'd either move myself between bed and the sofa. And this went on for month after month. It's extraordinary. And I mean, I can honestly say without any shadow of a doubt, the most difficult thing I've ever been through in my life. And I've had a few, you know, I've had a few rough medical journeys as well along the way, but this was in a different class. And is that some of that just because you didn't know what the, like, I mean, at some point in that three months, I guess you just think, I'm probably never going to get better. Some, like, I'm just stuck here in this sort of safer bed, safer bed world. Yeah, I mean, it was desperate. It was absolutely desperate and, and mentally um, probably harder than physically. A to see, you know, this 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 dream of mine absolutely shattered to be unable to, to work, unable to earn an income um, and to think, you know, you, you, you're ill for a week. You think I'll get better. You're ill for a month. You question it. You're ill for three months. You know, you genuinely start to doubt um, you're going to improve. You think, is this me? Is this it? And if this is it, you know, um, I'm not convinced I'm quite happy with this. Um, so, yeah, it was a really difficult time. It was a really difficult time. And I, and I had some major doubts as well. But I say that, but in the back of my mind, I always, there was something just saying, you'll, you'll get through this, you'll do it. Um, so it was, it was kind of a mixed emotion as well. And did, you, did, you, did you do something to get better or was it just time? I think it was a, comb- it was a combination of things. Um, I think... So if we if we say I I, I got sick, second phase started mid June, um, June July August were just a complete write off. Um, I mean a total write off. I, I couldn't, for example, hold a conversation on the phone. Just a just a two minute phone call would mean I'd be curled up in a ball in bed for the rest of the day. I couldn't string a sentence together. I couldn't write a sentence. I couldn't send a text message. It's hard to articulate just how debilitated I was. And it wasn't just me. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of, of COVID long haulers out there that are as bad or if not worse. But as I started to, I, I think there were a number of things happened. Firstly, I needed to accept where I was at, forget about all the things I could no longer do and just make a list of the things I could do. And I could read for short periods of time and I could watch YouTube videos. So I spent my time researching how I could get well. And I really treated that just like any expedition. It's like, right, this is the goal. What are all the things that I can do to impact that? So break it down and forget about the outcome because we don't control the outcome. I couldn't control whether I was going to get better or whether I was going to be like this forever. But I could control what I could do within the day. And I had a limited amount of energy and I spent it on marginal gains. Right, what things can I do to to get my health back? Okay, I need to rest and recover. Right, great. I can have a cold shower because that's research proven great. I can take certain supplements that are science backed. So I bought them all. I'll take them. Great. And what, what, what are the supplements that, uh, that you took? I mean, the, the list is, is horrendous. I'm probably even today taking over 20 different supplements a day. Um, so the ones, the common ones that, that I'd recommend are, are lots of vitamin C, uh, vitamin D. Um, and I'm then taking zinc. Uh, and after that, we get into the, the wonderful wor- world of, of weird and strange things, but with science backing. So um, examples would include, I take high-dose vitamin E. It's a powerful antioxidant. I'm taking D-ribose, which is a, a source of energy. I'm taking 
alpha lipionic acid, a very powerful antioxidant. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah, and, yeah, not, yeah. and you can't just ram them down your throat. You need to take them at certain times, certain vitamins you want to take with an empty stomach and certain vitamins you want to take with food. So there's a bit of science behind this. I mean, I've literally written out a whole supplement plan. <laughs> And now, and now, where do you feel you are? Now you're, what, 80%, 90%, 100%? What do you reckon? Yeah, that's, I, I'd say I'm 80% on a good day. And this is the piece now I have to be very, very careful about is on days when I feel good not to go and overdo it. I mean, yesterday is a really a real case in point. Um, I was feeling quite strong. So the morning I went out and did a 90-minute walk, but I put in some bodyweight exercises along the way. Got home, I thought, yeah, I'm still feeling okay. This is amazing. I did a weights training session, um, so finished that. Thought, yeah, I'm still feeling pretty good. So I then went out and went kayaking for 40 minutes. And, and, and the problem is when you've been ill for that period of time and your body is now finally saying, you can do this, I'm going to let you do this, um, the temptation was just too great. And I knew at the time that I was being stupid. And I got back and then finished off with a yoga session. Um, <laughs> Probably yesterday was probably the best day I've had, um, genuinely since since March. Um, but that said, I'm paying for a price for it today, and I, I, I don't, I, you know, I'm probably back down to sixty percent today. So you've got to pace it. You've got to pace it, yeah. and that's that's a real learning for me. And what you you mentioned the uh, the charity that you were actually, yeah, the Guinness World Record attempt that you were going to do was around raising money for a charity. What's the? Tell me more about the charity and what what the aims of the charity are. Yeah, so the charity is World Land Trust. Uh, you may have heard of them and seen them. They're an unbelievable outfit. To give a little background, Sir David Attenborough is their patron. Um, and if you think about Sir David, he doesn't put his name to many things. A good friend of mine, Steve Bashel, uh, is also a patron. And the organization um, work all over the world. They do a variety of different things. But if you had to pick out the number one, they buy areas of endangered land. So that could be primary rainforest, where, where if they don't buy it, the loggers will come in and buy it. So rather than that piece of land being destroyed forever, they'll buy it and they'll convert it into a reserve, a protected nature reserve, where it's protected for the foreseeable. And They've got an amazing track record. I, they've got literally hundreds of projects around the world, and these are big areas. And for me, there's one particular project they're working on, which they've very kindly asked me if I'll partner with them on, and that is a reserve in Guatemala. Um, so within Guatemala, they're already involved in three existing res reserves, nature reserves. But there's a 4,000-hectare piece of land situated in the center of these other reserves, and Again, it's that classic, if they don't buy it, um, it will be bought and used for something else, i.e. it will be destroyed. It's quite an expensive piece of land as well. So this is the project right now, is the land acquisition is going through, I believe, as we speak. And then the next stage then is to convert that into a nature reserve. And it's just unbelievable. And it's, it's a very strategically important piece of land in terms of the biodiversity that exists there. Uh, and also the fact that it links up um, existing nature reserves as well. So incredibly strategic purchase. Fab. So uh, if yesterday was a good day, you must have started planning another trip. Yeah, I mean, in terms <laughs> where, where, where are you thinking of going? In, in terms of, of what we do next, I, I'm taking a, a gamble. Uh, that's a gamble on, on my recovery, my recovery back to full health. 
And I haven't given up on my, my, my challenge dream. As I said, it's, um, it's called the 721 challenge. And I've had to simply rejig it. So my next project is rowing the Atlantic at the back end of next year. So I've got 12 months to get fully fit, um, do all the prerequisites uh, and get myself in a boat um, to row the Atlantic. After that will be the North Pole. And then I'll finish in a year's time with the South Pole, with that big crossing of Antarctica on the South Pole. So that's the plan. That's what I'm working towards right now. And do you, the, the, the rowing across the Atlantic, do you do that with other people is that as part of a thing or is it completely solo and, you know, you push your bathtub out from Portsmouth Harbour and start rowing? What's the... No, so the vast majority of rowers, and, and, and I will be within that, um, row the Atlantic as a part of uh, the Talisker Challenge. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and there's good reason for doing that because they'll have a couple of yachts. I mean, we're not talking, it's pretty rustic, but they'll have a couple of yachts um, out in the Atlantic. So if something does happen, they've got, they've got the ability to get you, to you. It may be a couple of days, but they've got some ability to get to you um, in the form of rescue. Now, this one I'm not doing solo. I'm actually doing it with a, a, a rowing partner, a chap by the name of James Rag. Um, he's an awesome guy, and I and I chose James um, because we have a little history, uh, not in a rowing boat, but in a kayak. Where many years ago now, I needed a, a last-minute partner to compete in the DW Divisor to Westminster, which is the longest non-stop kayak race in the world. And that event takes place in I think it's, it's in April. It's Easter weekend in April, and I had the conversation with James in I think it was December or January time. I said, look, James, I'm in a fix. I need a partner for this event because it's a pairs event. Are you up for it? And he sort of ummed and ahed, thought about it for a moment. He just looked at me and said, how, how hard can it be? 126 miles, 50-something portages in 24 hours. Yeah, he was in for it. And literally that night we were in a kayak and we trained every single day until the, uh, till the event. And in that time, we did not have a crossword. It was the most brilliant relationship. And so I'm really looking forward to carrying that. Uh, that relationship on across the Atlantic. And how many, how, how long does it take to row the Atlantic? Yeah, there's a huge variance um, in times, but but we're looking at about 45 days. Um, some boats are taking a lot longer. There's a degree of luck with it as well. You're in the trade winds and do you, do you get lucky with the winds? You're in the right place at the right time. But if you were to say 45 days, you're probably in that ballpark. Okay. that's good. Well, good luck with all of that. Where should people go to follow your follow your expeditions i mean it'd be amazing um if you if you could follow me we have a facebook page which is 721 challenge and you'll be able to find us on 721 challenge alternatively you can follow me on nick hollis on facebook and we also have actually a website for the 721 challenge which is www.721challenge.com but yeah, if you are able to follow us on that or follow me on that, that would be absolutely amazing because it's when, when you're in these places, when you're on your own, it's unbelievable just, you know, to have that support, the difference it makes when the going gets tough. So that would be hugely appreciated. Brilliant. Nick, we'll do that. I'll, we'll put that in, put those in all those links in the show notes. Um, what is it that you know now, though, that you wish you'd known earlier? That's a brilliant question. Yeah, if I could, if I could do it all over again, um, it would be to have the courage to back myself. It would be to have the courage to do the big things that I want to do. 
Um, and what I mean by that is not waste time. I suppose as you get older, you realize that life is finite. You only have so many hours in the day and you've only got so many, so many hours or days of life left. And for me, it's just to say, yeah, I am good enough and I'm not going to waste my time on stuff that's A, not important to me, also things that I don't enjoy. And you can be hugely successful by just having a passion and just having the pure guts to go for that passion. When, when you left HP, did, did you think you'd, you'd still be not working again or did you think you'd be, you'd be back there? Or, you know, what did you think? Did you, I mean, you, you, you dived out without a plan, but did you care? Okay, I mean, so in terms of diving out without a without a plan at all, that's perhaps a little bit of an exaggeration. I knew for many years when I was at, I was at HP that I had a passion outside of that, which was mountaineering. So along that journey, I also studied and and gained some qualifications in mountaineering. So when I left HP, I actually had a a, a range of mountaineering qualifications. But I think it's a brilliant question. Um, I'd say 50-50. There was a part of me that said, okay, if this doesn't work, I can always get back in the corporate world. I've got a good reputation. And I was fortunate even years after um, leaving HP that people would would get in contact and ask, I'll be interested in in joining their team for whatever company it was. Um, So I had every confidence that I'd be able to get back into that life. 10 years down the line, I don't think I could. I don't think I could do it. I mean, nobody asks me these days anyway. Um, but, but having had that degree of freedom, and it's been extraordinarily difficult setting up, um, any, for anyone that's ever done it, you'll know, setting up a business from scratch, from absolutely nothing, um, and growing it, I mean, it's all-consuming. It, for me, certainly, it took every waking moment I had to do that. But the great thing was I was doing what I loved. I mean, if I didn't love it, it, it just wouldn't have worked. I just wouldn't have, have, have had that devotion, that dedication to do that. Um, but, yeah, I suppose coming back to your question, 50-50, I didn't know if it would work, but, um, but I'm really glad that it has. Yeah, happy to back yourself. Any books along the way? I mean, are there, you know, maybe there are some classic mountaineering texts that people could read for inspiration or maybe there's some business books in terms of setting up and running your business that you've come across that you'd like to share what whatever what what have you found useful that you think other people should pick up yeah i mean i i read a lot um i'm very much into audiobooks now um so i can i can listen while i while i walk some books i suppose if i look back and these are books i haven't read in years But if I was to take one book um, that defines the importance of having a purpose, it would be Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that's an extraordinary book um, about human psychology and the link between waking up in the morning and having a purpose, a reason to get out of bed, and how that correlates with how resilient you are during the day is quite remarkable. So for me, that would be a a definite must-read book. Uh, in terms of role models in business, um, I, I have to say, for me, it's Warren Buffett. I just think he is an extraordinary character. Not just extraordinary in, in terms of what he's achieved, but extraordinary in terms of what a damn decent chap. I think this is a guy that has got the right ethics, um, and he's demonstrated that actually you can perform and you can achieve at the absolute highest level and be completely honest 
and have integrity down to the core. In fact, it's having those, those attributes give him or have given him a competitive advantage. Uh, and there's a book called The, the Snowball. And again, I think that's an outstanding read. It comes across in that book as um, maybe not the easiest character to live with. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't, had, you wouldn't want to be married to him, right? <laughs> definitely, definitely had some complicated, complicated home, home situations. But I mean, I mean, again, you wouldn't want to be married to him. But just the fact, you know, he still lives in the same house that he bought. I think it was in the in the 60s. And it's a house that if you valued it today, it's probably it's not even worth a million dollars. And he still lives there. And he's worth what in the region of 80 billion. Right. Yeah. Guy is a guy that can have any house he wanted. And he still lives in a house that costs less than a million dollars. And he drives some beaten up old car. And, and buys his breakfast from McDonald's on the way to work in the morning. For me, you know, that is, that is a hero. That is somebody that, uh, that I very much look up to. And then finally, I, I'll give you a couple. Um, if you want a good mountaineering book, one that you definitely will never be able to put down is Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. I suppose I have a bit of an issue with the mountaineer himself. In the sense that he's he's he shared a story on Everest, he shared his own story, but there is a lot of conflicting information that has subsequently arisen um, regarding and, and and the story, by the way, relates to the nineteen ninety six tragedy on Everest, where uh, I, I think it was nine members of um, of his team uh, didn't make it back off the mountain. Um, but John Krakauer is you know an incredible writer, and the book itself is extraordinary. So I would really read it, but maybe follow it up with, um, with, with some third-party accounts of what really happened on that climb. Okay. I'll do that. That was, uh, that was the worst. Was that the worst day ever in Everest death toll in one day? I think, it, I, I think it was up there, but, but actually um, we'd have to compare because, I, as I say, I climbed Everest last year, and that was a really ugly season on the mountain, I, I think it was, a, it was either 11 or 13 people didn't make it back. So you may find um, that, that, that the death toll of 2019 is right up there. And then of course you had the, um, the avalanche in 2013. So I haven't compared those, those statistics, but yeah, certainly it was. Um, it, how, it, many, it, how many people climbed Everest last year? If 13 of them didn't make it, like what's, I think it was, again, I think it was about 300-something yeah. in that ballpark uh, made it to the summit. So they aren't the best odds in the world. Like climbing Everest is not, uh, it, it's still fairly dangerous. Yeah, it is dangerous. Um, and, and I'm going to be honest, it, having been out there and been able to give a first-hand account, I thought it was a lot more dangerous or it is a lot more dangerous than I actually thought it was going to be. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, it's ridiculously high. And what you realize is on those, the top higher sections of the mountain, uh, you're very helpless. And if you, for example, are unable to get yourself back down, you're not coming back down. Uh, you need to be completely self-reliant. You have the Kumbu Icefall. So this is the glacier um, that you have to cross immediately after base camp. And you have to cross this a number of times. Because when you climb Everest, you can't just go straight to the summit. You need to acclimatize. And the way you do that is by carrying out a number of mini climbs on the lower part of the mountain. But each time you leave base camp, you've got to go through the Kumbu Icefall. 
And that is a, a frozen river of ice. And the best way I could describe that would be imagine a humongous Jenga set. But you've got blocks of ice and they're the size of large buildings. And then factor in that this thing, it's a frozen river, it moves about three meters a day. So it's unstable. Every time you go through this, it's a bit like Russian roulette and you've got this kind of few, thank God for that, when you get through it. And I had to go through it eight times. And then other issues that you've got on Everest, and hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn here, is some of the mountaineers uh, don't have the experience to be there. And that creates a whole raft of issues and problems. One of the primary problems is they're very slow, and particularly they're very slow when the going gets tough, so on the technical ground, and this creates bottlenecks. Yeah. Now, on the lower sections, in the Kumbu Icefall, it means you're exposed to risk for significantly longer than, than you ideally would be. But on the top section, it can be the difference between coming back alive and not making it back at all if you've spent two hours stuck behind some inexperienced mountaineer who can't get up the Hillary Step, for example. Blimey. Blimey. Okay. Nick, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you today. I'm glad uh, I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad you had a good day. Just listening to what you did yesterday exhausted me. So um, I hope you have a, a, a fantastic uh, a fantastic week. And thanks. Thanks, Dominic. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks for coming on. Speak to you Great. soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.